ILCA is, today, the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA. Hello everyone, uh, my name is David Pinato and I'm a consultant medical oncologist at Imperial College London. Uh, today I've got the pleasure of being here with uh, Anjana Pillai, who is Associate Professor uh, at the um, University of Chicago in the United States. Um, so today we're going to have a bit of a discussion about the uh, general session uh, two, which um, at ILCA 2021 look at epidemiology, staging and prognosis of HCC. And I wanted perhaps to start with um, the first study um, that was reported and presented by Ngui and Eric, uh, looking at the characteristics of unresectable HCC uh, in this changing time uh, of immunotherapy. So this was the Elitor study. Um, what do you think about this particular abstract, Anjana? What do you think were the take-home messages? Yeah, I think, you know, it was a nice descriptive study uh, of uh, a little over a thousand patients from the chief cohort. Um, I think main take home messages, you know, vast majority of patients, alcohol or metabolic ideology, uh, large number of patients um, were treated with TACE as their main local regional therapy. And then importantly, almost 30% did have immunotherapy, mostly were a tesalizumab. Um, and then there was a cohort, about 53 patients um, that had uh, immunotherapy alone, atesabev. Um, and, you know, I think this is a nice study showing different uh, stages of treatment and uh, treatment options, um, but also maybe allows us to think about combination treatments um, in subsequent lines of treatment. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's quite interesting to get some fresh real world data, especially of the use of atizabev, the, you know, one of the new therapies that is sort of coming about and has imposed itself as a global standard of care. Um, and I think it's, it would be interesting to continue to follow up this cohort, uh, to sort of get a sense of how these patients did compared to all the other therapeutic options that are sort of uh, available to them. Um, the, another very interesting study that we heard uh, about during ILCA 2021 was a, a really interesting seminal paper by Amit Singhal, uh, which was looking at the male outreach strategy um, in HCC surveillance. So this was a randomized multi-site study. And I think this goes to show how important the issue of uh, screening still remains in patients with HCC. So uh, in this study, you know, we have you know, a vast number of patients that were enrolled uh, either with normal uh, screening or with male outreach screening. And actually, one of the big barriers that we feel as clinicians is that we kind of need, need to reach out to these patients. That's and right. you know, we're having a discussion, Anjana, about, you know, the overall proportion of people that undergo biannual screening as as planned and i think 35% is the sort of ballpark figure that we see from the study how how do you react to that figure anjana yeah i think this is a great study as a lot of amit's uh, studies are looking at surveillance and interventions um i found it a little disappointing uh, that uh, despite uh, these efforts uh we are uh, you know do under screening under surveillancing these patients um and so i think we need to still figure out uh, which subgroup maybe of patients that we can target and maybe other novel ways in addition to this uh, we can add to our clinical practice. Um, I also found it really interesting that the VA system, and, and I don't know if this will 
uh, still remain the case. Uh, this is supposed to be a three-year planned study, but that um, you know the mailed outreach was significantly increased at the VA uh, system and the safety net hospital versus uh, the tertiary care center. Um, I would have almost expected the tertiary care center and VA to do equivalent, you know, equivalently well, and maybe the safety net hospital not to do as well. So I thought that was also interesting. Especially given the resources that, you know, are, are differentially available to this type of centers, I, I completely agree. Um, another aspect that I think I wasn't particularly aware of and that was presented by Nicole Rich in the in, in the following oral presentation is the issue of cancer cachexia. And this is, again, another very interesting study by Nicole's and Amit's group um, looking at what is the prevalence of cancer cachexia, so you know, loss of appetite, weight loss, that are essentially cancer-related or potentially even, um, you know, chronically with disease-related. And I think in this study, we are actually seeing convincing evidence in a very uh, substantial number of patients. So it's a 600 patients database that actually a, a, a proportion of people up to one in four patients really uh, present with a number of features that would make you know, as happy as oncologists and hepatologists, you know, compensated liver function, good performance status, all the things that we look at when we do our homework. Uh, and yet, you know, high prevalence of cachexia, um, which is actually an independent predictor of survival. So, Anjana, do you think you've, you know, do you look at cachexia at the nutritional status in your clinic? Is this something that you feel is important? Um, yes, you know, I, I, I love the study. I thought this was such an important clinical study. Um, and I, I, I also found it so interesting, as you just stated, that uh, most of these patients had, were well, or a good number of these patients were well compensated, and over 40% were had stage, um, early stage disease. And I think, you know, the, this is where, uh, as we've discussed many times, the importance of a multidisciplinary team and the input of uh, oncologists with hepatology and dietitians and nutritionists, uh, nutritionists really help um, because, you know, we are, as we all know very well, this is uh, cancer in a diseased organ versus many other cancers that you deal with, um, which is a healthy organ and a cancer. And so I think that's what's reflective of um, is that even well-compensated patients with cirrhosis have cachexia and yeah. they are frail. And so we really need to be addressing that need early on because otherwise they're not getting treated and that's what the study nicely shows yeah absolutely and i think you know where i always tell my students that we should think about hcc as being an asymptomatic disease nowadays where you pick it up you know from screening from imaging liver nodules are essentially not painful whatever right. but actually you know having a, a documented evidence of cachexia in in 25 percent of patients is is a significant cancer related significant disease. yeah Subtle can be ignored, but I think it shouldn't. And I think this study is definitely going to add to that body of evidence. It's really interesting. Agreed. Uh, so the next study um, that we wanted to talk about is um, a simple user-friendly model to predict early recurrence after uh, surgical resection. So something that is called ERS. And it's a very interesting study uh, presented by Constantine Charlotte from Julian Calderaro's group. Um, that looked at predictors of uh, survival in patients that undergo resection. And uh, this particular score assigns different uh, prognostic weight uh, on the basis of the hazard ratios of each individual uh, variable that is included in the model. And those include things like bilirubin, albumin, 
a raised alpha-fetal protein, presence of multifocal tumor, or a size of the largest nodules that is above 40 millimeters, or the presence of um, satellite nodules, and other adverse features on the histopathological um, specimens, such as vascular invasion and positivity of the surgical margin. So we have a score that goes from 0 to 14, uh, four different levels, and uh, one of the things that the investigators looked at is the probability of recurrence at, at two years. And we're sort of looking at stratification of these patients where, you know, you have certain cohorts where the, the, the risk is, is in excess of 50%. Um, I'm going to ask Anjan a very provocative question here. Um, so we have this tool that, you know, is now available. It's fairly simple and can potentially be used in terms of trying to understand who are the patients that benefit most from surgery? Um, would you stop uh, your surgical colleagues to operate on someone that has got such a poor prognostic tumor? I think this is a great question. Puts me on the spot. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would say that it would really depend, you know, if there was, because there's so many, there's different components that give you a higher score. So if it was a multifocal, um, you know, multiple satellite nodules, um, maybe I'd be less apt to, but um, just on some of the other uh, markers, um, I still think uh, if you, you know, because some of this data like vascular invasion, um, you only know after with the pathology, so you don't know this uh, preoperatively. Um, I, so I, I think if preoperatively, if you think it's a good uh, resectable candidate, no vascular invasion, I would still go ahead and encourage our surgeons to resect. But I think that it's also uh, comes into this also probably introduces the idea of neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy. Um, so maybe in these patients with satellite nodules and multifocality, thinking of maybe a local regional therapy early on just to look at uh, tumor biology and disease stability before resection. And similarly, you know, as we were discussing er uh, earlier, the idea of adjuvant um, therapy. Um, again, we don't have any data on that yet, but, you know, this might be where you use this model um, uh, in a high ER our uh, score greater than, you know, let's say four to six, you may, it may be a person you want to enroll in those trials. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that uh, surgical practice is very different geographically. So, for example, in the East, in, you know, in, in China, uh, you know, surgery is offered even in patients with portal vein invasion, but limited disease. And, you know, it, it's quite interesting because, I mean, the choice of surgery is always depends on what else is available to the patient, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, I agree with your with your comment. So the idea of maybe predicting prognosis is good, but uh, we kind of need randomized evidence to suggest that the patients will sort of do equally or less well across different treatment strategies before really, you know, adopting this, this sort of prognostic models. And I do think that we as a community are um, embracing more the idea of multimodal and multidisciplinary care through all aspects of um, HCC, right? The BCLC staging system was just updated to reflect that. So I think studies like uh, like this actually help, you know, uh, reiterate that need. Um, and along the same vein of the abstract that we've just discussed, there is a very interesting seminal work uh, published and presented by Dr. Hong Wei from uh, the University of Sichuan uh, Department of Radiology in China 
were, again, looking at a single-center cohort of patients that underwent uh, resection. So we've got a good number, about 200 patients. Um, they were looking at a number of radiologic features, again, on the basis of, um, of pre-resection imaging, uh, where uh, things like, you know, again, presence of satellite nodules, uh, coronal enhancement, infiltrative appearance, um, are predictive of worse survival. Um, now, a very quick question on this, Angina. Do you think that radiology is uh, one of those uh, modalities from a diagnostic point of view that can help us differentiating patients in terms of likelihood of obtaining a good response? Yes, I think, you know, this really nicely dovetails to the previous study we're talking about, right? To hear, you know, satellite nodules or more infiltrative appearance uh, are two of the big things that uh, increase the risk, uh, decrease the risk, uh, decrease overall survival. And I, I feel that um, we also see that in practice, you know, when a patient has a very well-defined HCC, we're much more uh, likely and our interventionalists are much more likely uh, to want to do local regional therapy, where if it's more infiltrative or multifocal or satellite, um, you would think, you know, is there a vascular involvement? Is there a distant met uh, something else that you're not thinking of? So, yes, I think this is uh, it's a nice study highlighting that. Uh, as you said, it's retrospective and small sample single center, but still, I think, important, um, uh, useful information. Perfect. Thank you. And uh, the last study that was presented at the oral session is from Dr. Nihar Parekh. Um, we have uh, a really interesting um, study looking at the association of SVR uh, in patients treated with uh, hepatitis C-associated hepatocellular carcinoma. This, in my mind, is one of the greatest advancements of you know the, the recent years, the availability of DAAs. Um, I mean, I still remember, you know, when uh, in the old days, you know, people were getting 52 weeks of interferon ribavirin uh, with dismal responses and actually a lot of um, questions around whether patients that already got HCC, uh, you know, were, it was even worth offering, you know, the pain of going through a year of treatment. Uh, now, in a nutshell, what this study shows is that being viremic is bad for you. I think we always knew this, uh, yeah. didn't. Uh, but at the same time, it was very, very difficult to prove that actually acting on the virus when the cancer is present can lead to better outcomes. I am particularly thrilled about the outcomes that were utilized for this study, which is time to hepatic decompensation. Um, I know, Anjana, you're a co-author on this study. Um, can you give us a sense of why this particular endpoint was chosen and you know, whether you feel that there is truly on the basis of this data, the, the message that everyone should be offered DAA therapy in this context. Yeah, I, I, I also really, um, obviously conflicted, but, <laughs> but like this study quite a bit. Um, you know, I think the, the same group, uh, showed, um, on, uh, with Ahmed being lead author that DAAs are not associated with, uh, increased HCC risk. That was a multi-center study published in Gastro in 2018. So kind of putting that, um, aside, uh, that question aside. And I think, you know, this idea of withholding HCC therapy, um, you know, uh, well, let me say it this way. I don't think we know when the optimal time is to start H, uh, HCV therapy and active uh, HCC. But, you know, what I do in my practice is as long as I know that the 
the patients are not going to benefit from hep C therapy, meaning that the biology of HC, the HCC or there are treatment uh, options for the HCC. I, I may wait about three months or so, but uh, just to prove that, especially with advanced HCC, but I do treat these patients. And like to your point, just to highlight what this study shows, that if you have SVR, you reduce hepatic decompensation. And I think even though there was no difference in the overall survival, when you look at that um, graph, you can see that the viremic patients towards the, the kind of tail end, uh, they do worse as far as overall survival. So like you said, something we knew, and I think this kind of compels us to go ahead and offer treatment. Uh, again, the defined time to which we offer treatment is still a little up in the air. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there were a lot of debates around, you know, the appropriateness and actually the cost effectiveness even of this therapy for patients with cancer and limited prognosis. But what we're seeing is that obviously the prognosis of HCC is increasing significantly. And I think it becomes more and more important to fully support these patients. It's impossible to give these patients very expensive treatments and sometimes side effects from them if we don't really look them, look after them well from the point of view of the underlying liver disease. Yes, exactly. Uh, I personally feel that, uh, you know, Ilka is definitely growing and it was a real pleasure to be chairing this session with you, Anjana. Uh, I personally feel that I've learned a lot around epidemiology, staging and prognosis. These studies really show us that, for example, immunotherapy is up and coming in the real world and is taking a significant chunk of that active anti-cancer therapy in patients with a French study. Uh, we know that HCC is sadly here to stay. 35% of patients you know, are actually uh, taking up uh, active screening on a biannual level. So sadly, this means that a lot of missed opportunities are out there for early diagnosis, and we really need to improve on this. Uh, we have seen that uh, prognosis of HCC really needs to be refined, uh, looking at cachexia nutritional status, looking at the variables both radiologically and pathologically a little bit better can really help us understand what the patients that, you know, will do worse uh, during follow-up. And lastly, as we said, you know, we really need to look into taking better care of the underlying chronic liver disease with therapies that we now know can eradicate hepatitis C. I think this was a very interesting session. Um, thank you very much, Angela, to have had this conversation with me. Thank you. It was my pleasure, and I echo everything you said. Uh, this is really a wonderful session. I love that we had such different uh you know, such different disciplines and types of uh, treatments and surveillance and prognosis um, highlighted here. So, yes, thank you, Ilka, for uh, allowing us to do this. Fantastic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's all from us, and we hope to see you face-to-face -face in Madrid. Thank you. Ilka. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA